All right, so we are continuing in our series through the Minor Prophets. So low traffic area typically in the Old Testament from the books uh, from the book of Hosea through the end of the Old Testament, at least the way it's ordered in our um, copies of God's Word, Malachi. So there's 12 of them, taking one each week. And really the vision from the beginning was to feed a fish Sunday by Sunday, hopefully with a little bit of butter and lemon pepper, maybe, um, but also to teach to fish, to equip us to study these books because they are um, unfamiliar territory to a lot of us, and as we read them, we can get easily confused and like, what in the world is going on? Because there's history and cultural background that's important to kind of understand so that you can really see the significance and relevance for our lives, and so... Um, Yes, each Sunday is important, but also they're intended to kind of whet your appetite and uh, be a little shot in the arm and an encouragement to go study them more for yourself, which is why we gave that reading plan at the beginning in the first few weeks. And so um, if you didn't take advantage of that, you could even start it after we're done with the series and continue to benefit from these rich books filled with very important, relevant truth um, if we do a little work, a little mining to uncover the, uh, the gold, the gems that are in there. So one thing, I'm just kind of an orientation thing. So give a fish, teach to fish is um, kind of one of the purposes of this series. But I also want to mention that as we've gone through this series and hit each book, the point is not to just kind of uncover some random, interesting bits in these books. Like, oh, look, this is here, and look, that's there, okay? So did you notice this? As if reading the Bible is about finding curiosity nuggets, okay? I think sometimes we can read the Bible that way, you know, with our highlighter. Um, let's find something that I understand and that's, you know, like, huh, oh, that's good, that's helpful. But everything in between is just kind of lost on us, and we don't wrestle with understanding the whole context of what's being said and the flow of argument and all of that. So the goal in this series is to represent the big picture, to kind of show the landscape as it were and hit the most important themes of the book. In some of the longer ones, we've just been able to kind of dip down in a few places to see evidence of those themes. We're going to actually be able to walk through um, all of Haggai today um, fairly quickly, but it's only two chapters long. But some of the other ones, we've just kind of done this, you know, helicopter flyover, and then we just touch down in a few places. Okay, but the whole point is to see the most important themes um, again, so that we understand what this book is all about. And then as we walk through the trees, the individual trees, we don't get lost in the forest because we understand what's going on. So I guess it's just an encouragement not to read your Bible and just look for curiosity nuggets as if these books are just filled with unrelated pearls on the string and, ooh, there's one, and, ooh, there's one. I have no idea if they're connected, but I'm just looking for another one. No, this is like intentionally um, strung together sermons or, um, you know, there's poetry and prose and there's a reason why it's compiled the way that it is. 
And so learning to kind of follow the train of thought is really helpful and important. And especially when you hit books like this, you have to wrestle sometimes. You need to get out that study Bible so that you can understand what is going on. How did he get from here to here and press into it rather than like, ah, I don't get it. I'm just going to go back to the Gospels. Um, so anyway, there you go. That's the intro. Let's dive into Haggai. Um, but before we do, let's pray again briefly and ask for God's help on our study here. Oh, Father, it is so fitting that we, we sung and prayed through song. Take my heart, it is your own. It shall be your royal throne. May that be the response of our heart this morning to your word. May we say, not just with our lips, but from the depths of our hearts and with our life in response, your kingdom come. You are the king. You are the Lord. You are in charge. And we want to welcome your kingship into every nook and cranny of our life. So may we not resist your spirit's work this morning, his conviction shining the light into the corners of our lives, convicting us, challenging us. May we welcome that because it's for our good and it's for your glory and it's for the good of those that you've put us on planet earth to minister to, to serve. Whether they be foster children or our neighbors or the nations and everything in between. So take our hearts and rule. May we willingly, gladly submit to your Lordship, Lord Jesus. Have your way with us, Holy Spirit, and please change us from the inside out. Give us ears to hear and attentive hearts, humble, receptive hearts to be changed by your word. So Lord, help me to be faithful to your word so that your word does its work among us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So there's an outline, like Tyler mentioned, um, sermon notes on the live stream page. Um, so if you've pulled that up, you can follow along that way, or the, the points will be on the slides behind me here. So uh, first point is who, what, when, where. This is just, let's get our bearings here, because the time in history changes from minor prophet to minor prophet. And so where are we? Let's get our bearings, get oriented to what's going on. So Haggai is a prophet of the Lord. Sometimes it can be hard to, to date these books precisely. Um, that is not so in the case of the book of Haggai. We know exactly when the events of this book took place, in the year 520 B.C., and actually in the course of about four months, all of it. So, okay, what's going on? Well, the Israelites previously had been in exile in Babylon from 586 B.C. when Babylon came in and just burned Jerusalem to the ground and killed many and carted off many to Babylon as exiles. So think about what exile means meant for the people of Israel. 
loss of the monarchy. So they don't have a king. They're under the thumb of a foreign king. They lose the temple, which means they lose the rhythms of weekly and annual worship, the festivals that are so significant as far as their cultural identity, their spiritual identity and community. Loss of the priesthood. So you are under the thumb of a foreign power, subjugated like slaves. So Persia is on the rise, and they conquer Babylon in 539 B.C., The Persian ruler was a guy named Cyrus the Great. So he ruled from 559 to 530, but again, 539, Persia conquers Babylon. And in 538, the very next year, he proclaimed an edict that allowed Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. So 2 Chronicles 36, 23 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me, at least, you know, of the known world in that area at that time, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Like, you can go ahead and go back home. Rebuild your life and your temple. So the very next book in the ordering of our English Bibles is Ezra 1.1. And it says this, in the first year of King Cyrus, or of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So people came back in waves. Okay, the first wave led by the governor Sheshbazar, you can read of this in the rest of Ezra chapter 1, was made up of about 42,000 people, Jews, And they also had over 7,000 servants that came with them, okay? So the temple work commenced, but then there was opposition, and the work stalled out. You can read about that in Ezra 3 and 4. And then Cyrus died in 530 B.C., and the restoration work came to a halt. His son, I think you say his name, Cambyses, or I don't know how you say his name. Anyway, um, he reigned from 530 to 522, He had no interest in supporting this edict, you know, for the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. Um, So then Darius I ascended to the throne in 522 and brought stability to the realm, and the conditions were again favorable for the rebuilding of the temple. So Haggai is mentioned in Ezra 5, Ezra 6. Um, We'll just look at two verses in Ezra 6, verses 13 to 14. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, which we're going to look at Zechariah next week. They were contemporaries, and there's a lot of overlap we'll see. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So what that means is the temple was completed in four years. Started in 520, ended in 516. Darius reigned from 522 to 486. Um, So anyway... The book of Haggai takes place during Darius' reign, specifically 520 B.C., 
And everything that happens in this book takes place in the year 520 B.C., and it's basically ranging about four months of time. So that's an overview of who, what, when, where. Now, what are the main issues? What are the main issues that Haggai addresses? So we find out right away in verse 2 of chapter 1. So second point, seek first the kingdom. And you'll see why that wasn't just kind of obligatory background information like, oh, whatever, you know, can we just get on to something? This is actually important for understanding what's going on in the book and its relevance. So seek first the kingdom, chapter 1, verses 2 to 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? So here's why point one is important, the who, what, when, where point. They're living in paneled houses, and yet the house of the Lord remains in ruins. How long has it been since they got back to Jerusalem? I mean, there, there were waves of return, right? But for some of those folks, it had been how many years? Who's paying attention? 18 years. 18 years, and the temple's still laying in ruins. That's a long time to neglect, which betrays misplaced priorities. And the Lord is saying your misplaced priorities have consequences. So look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Why? Because of their misplaced priorities. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, verse 5, verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So this is an early precursor to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. But Haggai kind of shows us the, the opposite or kind of the corollary, the converse truth. If you seek first your own kingdom, anxious about selfishly focusing on your own life, seeking the same things that the pagans do, God can subtract and make your life like a sieve. You try to make all this money, it just goes into a bag with holes in it. You sow much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. So here, the issue is not simply that they watch too much fixer-upper. They like DIY and home decorating, you know. In and, of those, in and of themselves, those things aren't an issue, you know. So don't get nervous if you've got too much shiplap in your house, you know, paneled houses. The city had been in ruins and was being reestablished 
But this was the city of David. This is the special place of God's dwelling. But the rebuilding of the temple was on the back burner, which doesn't just mean that their priorities were out of whack, which they were, and that's important. But here's the point. They were rebuilding their lives, the city, their community, who they were, without God at the center. God's at the periphery rather than at the center. God at the center was optional to them, not essential to them. So Psalm 127 is apt. Like, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early. So you see, like, this is the problem here. The problem was that Yahweh was not at the center of their focus and their efforts for reestablishing the city, who they are, the community, their security, and their future. He was peripheral rather than central. They were taking matters into their own hands. They were not living out, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. It was all these things first and the kingdom second rather than the other way around. So maybe too much fixer-upper, right? Maybe too much focus on DIY, but the real issue is, are we seeking first, were they seeking first the kingdom of God? Was God at the center of who they are and who they would be, their security, their identity, their future? But apparently, God at the center didn't matter too much to them. It didn't matter that the Lord was among them at the center, with them. They could get along pretty well without him, thank you. They were indifferent. So, that's pretty relevant stuff, isn't it? Like, are you, am I, indifferent to the kingdom of God at all? Like the good, the growth, the health, the maturity of the church, the spread of the gospel among our neighbors and the nations. Are we indifferent? Practically, functionally, really, week to week, because we're too busy with our own lives? Are we anxious about many things, filling our days seeking after the same things that those who don't know God seek after? Or are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Isn't it easy to just kind of plug along and not even realize that our priorities are out of whack? And God sometimes, severe mercy, but it's actually a mercy, will withhold blessing in order to get our attention. He did it with those in Jerusalem. So look at verse 10. Does anybody have a Kleenex? <laughs> that video kind of brought me to tears on that like thinking stuff is hanging out of my nose right now. Okay, maybe not. Thank you, Vicki. So verse 10, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. Like as a result of this marginalization of God and his presence among them and all that the temple represented, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought, God speaking, a drought on the land and the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. 
So very clearly, we are not ultimately in control of our own provision. We can do, we can make a lot, but if God doesn't bless it, it will be little. And certainly, if we seek first the second things, they will never satisfy us. We'll never have enough. Contentment doesn't come from having more. It comes from having God and being satisfied in him. Or in New Testament language, Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul learned the secret of contentment. It wasn't a little bit more. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The opposite is also true. We can have little, but if God blesses it, it'll be enough. It'll be plenty. I mean, just a picture of that is that widow that Elijah connected with, right? That jug of oil never ran out because she trusted the Lord. So she believed the word of God through the prophet Elijah. And we can believe the word of God through the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, for instance, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So they put God at the periphery. They didn't prioritize the rebuilding of the temple. They were focused on their own homes. And so therefore, God withheld the dew and called for a drought. Now, I don't know if anybody is just kind of feeling this way or not, but this is not because God is petty or egotistical or if you don't put me first, I'm going to take my ball and go home. No, it's because God refuses in his stubborn covenantal love to allow us to impoverish ourselves by fixating on other gods or priorities or treasures above him and his kingdom. If we do that, it's to our own hurt, actually. So he loves us too much to, to leave us to that. So he will sometimes give us lack so that he can give us himself. Because that's the only thing that will ultimately, ultimately satisfy us. So he wants to bless us, but he will never enable idolatry. He, want, he doesn't want to enable. It wouldn't be loving for him to enable second things first living. C.S. Lewis has some insightful things to say about first things first. This is probably the most succinct thing he said. Put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Seek first the kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You'll have what you need. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we are being greedy. Or in another place, he writes, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. 
Because we're not trying to squeeze ultimate satisfaction out of a created thing. God's at the center. He is our treasure. He's our contentment. He's our joy. He's our pleasure. And then everything that's second gets its appropriate, gets put in its appropriate place, and we can enjoy it for what it is. So, what happened with these issues with Haggai's preaching? Well, his preaching was remarkably effective. And if you know the history of the response of the people of God to the prophets, oftentimes they kind of like stuck their fingers in their ears and stuck their tongue out, you know, at the prophets. And sometimes worse, persecuting them or killing them. But Haggai preached and there was a beautiful response on the part of the people. Starting with the leaders, look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, three weeks later than chapter 1, verse 1, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So the temple was on the back burner. God speaks people listened and they got to work so what's the equivalent for us I mean I could maybe get some mileage out of this for some of our current issues with our building right like you know give more to fix up our building you know don't you dare do that kitchen remodel but that would actually be sloppy and unfaithful kind of one-to-one sort of application this is not a call for coming to show up next week for the workday. Although, again, workday is a good thing and, you know, taking care of our building is a good thing. But the focus is the priority of the people of God seeking first the kingdom of God and building the temple of God and building their lives with God at the center. Not indifferent to God in any sphere of life, but with God at the center of every sphere of life. So the focus is values prioritization in the hearts of the people of God and the priority of the mission of God that he has given to his people. So the people heard the word of the Lord through Haggai. They were soft and obedient, and the Lord said, I'm with you. And he stirred up their spirits, and they got to work. When we, the people of God, hear the promise of King Jesus, we hear his command to go and make disciples. We hear his command to edify the church, to build it up. King Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And if we are soft and obedient, responding in faith to the word of God, wanting to follow our Lord on his mission, The Lord Jesus has already committed himself in advance. Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And he pours out his spirit as empowerment for the work of the gospel, for the mission. 
So that's like at the center of application. Does this have application to our finances and our giving like it did for them? Of course. Primarily to the building of the temple, which for us on this side of the cross is the building of the church, the living temple, the dwelling place of God in the world. So we are actually the temple. The church is the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God by his spirit, living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2. And the call of Haggai is to put our money where our mouth is. Now, insofar as this building serves the goal and mission of the kingdom and the houses as well, which they do, which is wonderful, we should faithfully give and take care of these ministry tools. But the building of the church is not building-focused, it's people-focused. So is the kingdom, is the church, is the mission a priority for you, for me? That's what we ought to be asking ourselves. So I'm speaking to believers, especially our members. Do you put your money where your mouth is? Am I putting my money where my mouth is? If you are not giving, or if you're giving in token ways, I remember hearing Randy Alcorn talk about tithing as like the training wheels for Christians. And he asked this question, would you die if you started giving 10% to the work of the gospel? <laughs> Most people would say, nope. Okay, then. Well, it's not a survival issue. It's a priorities issue. I remember hearing someone else say, you know what? 90% blessed is more than 100% unblessed. That sounds like it comes out of Haggai. So how do we respond to the word of God? Soft and repentant and responsive? Like believing Jesus' word, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Lay up treasures in heaven. I mean, we could just multiply these things. We can't afford not to give generously to the work of the gospel, to the work of the mission, to the needs in this world. And we would be foolish not to wholeheartedly give ourselves to God's mission in this world. I mean, if there is anything that we can put our hand to that won't be a waste, that will never be in vain, it would be the work of the Lord, right? The building of the church, the kingdom of God, it can't fail. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Love this quote by Dave Harvey in this book called Rescuing Ambition. Let's face it, even committed longtime church members can become lax and slow in their ambition for building the church. When church is not an ambition but only a place, the real ambitions of our lives inevitably crowded out. There are a lot of good things Christians can build. Good families, businesses, reputations, houses, memories, lifestyles. But there's nothing better to set your ambitions to than building a good church. He quotes J. Oswald Sanders, ambition that centers on the glory of God and welfare of the church is a mighty force for good. 
And yet, isn't it oftentimes the church that we get disappointed in and disillusioned by and our shoulders slump and we want to just throw up our hands? Like, is it really doing any good? Any amens? So, point number three, expectations, reality, hope, and perseverance. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. So, in Haggai's day, the initial energy gave way to discouragement, even among the leaders. I mean, you could hear people saying, like, you say you're with us, but this is not very impressive. It's really not what we were hoping for or expecting. I mean, Jeremiah made all these lofty promises, Ezekiel. I mean, are you really with us? This is nothing compared to the previous temple, which would be Solomon's temple. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. It's like a month later. Governor of Judah, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He knows that if anybody saw the Solomonic temple, which was just massive and awesome and glorious, this beginnings of a rebuilt temple was pretty pathetic. And, you know, easy for morale to just kind of drop like a lead balloon. Yet now, verse 4, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. That was a day of great things, wasn't it? A great day of great things. But even in the midst of this day of small things, I'm with you. So fear not. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So God is saying to his people, to use the language of Zechariah, which we'll look at next week, don't despise the day of small things. Though the temple was a shadow of its former glory, though there was not nearly the treasure that used to beautify the temple as in the days of Solomon. They should work and rebuild knowing that the Lord is with them. And they need to know that one day the future glory of the temple will make the Solomonic temple be just like a shadow in comparison. So he's saying to them, work in the hope of the fulfillment of these sure and certain promises. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, trust me, wait for it, keep working, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. You think Solomon's temple had gold and riches and wealth. Just wait till people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation flood into the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimate, you know, fulfillment here. And all the glory of the nations and all the cultural wealth is going to come in and it is going to be awesome because the whole 
New heavens and new earth is going to be like one big temple with God dwelling with us. And all the glory and wealth of the nations will be brought to him. So the latter glory, he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, Solomon, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the point is, work now in the light of the guaranteed future. Your labor is not in vain. So the Lord did not answer, ah, you guys are great. You're doing great things, great things. You know, come on. It's like a pep talk. Go team. And they're looking at it going like, this is pathetic. No, the Lord's answer was, be strong and work. I know it looks pathetic, but fear not, I'm with you. My spirit remains in your midst, and I will one day establish a temple that makes Solomon's temple look like a dollhouse. That's your hope. And so even when you go through days of disappointment and small gains, keep to it in hope. So do you see how connected our expectations and reality and hope and perseverance are, are related. Do you see that? We can have expectations and then reality hits and we just want to throw up our hands. Or do we listen to God's promises, we place our hope in him and we persevere and we keep being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. God's with us and he's at work. You know, or what do we do sometimes? We can throw up our hands. We can also look wistfully back, you know, times of great awakening, like the early church, you know, 3,000 added to the number at Pentecost. And then the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Like, what gives, Lord? I was praying, like, you know, as a church, we were praying for one and one, right? Each of us, what if we each led one person to Christ in a year? That seems like not that huge of a thing for God to answer. Maybe some of you, hopefully many of you, were praying for that regularly, and maybe you're looking for opportunities, and maybe you shared your faith a number of times, and ugh, nobody came to faith. Like, you just want to give up. How many times have we shared the gospel, and it doesn't seem like anybody's coming to Christ? We're wondering if we're doing something wrong. I mean, what was the magic formula with the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening or, you know, the explosion of the church in South Korea or, you know, Billy Graham and preaching to millions and hundreds of thousands of people come to faith? Like, we look around and we wonder, we just get discouraged, like, God, are you still with us? Like, are you planning on doing anything here in Wilmington? Or, like, what's... Anybody ever feel that way? I don't know. So we can dream and long for a movement of God's Spirit at the personal micro level, like through me. Use me, Lord. Pray and act and pray and act and get discouraged. Macro level, the church, or even movements among people groups. And as those longings and desires don't materialize and they run just unfulfilled under the bridge of our lived experience and can't you just so easily grow in discouragement and frustration at the smallness of your life and its impact? And we start to wonder why we see so little of the mighty power of God operative through us and around us. I mean, the prophets predicted that the glory of the latter temple would surpass that of the former temple, but when is this going to happen? Like, it's really easy to give up. So I was trying to think of, like, an illustration for how to 
illustrate this, <laughs> how hope empowers our perseverance. So this is not a perfect illustration, but hopefully it'll get at the point. So imagine a runner who won all kinds of awards in high school. He goes to college on a full, full ride, parties too much, gets kicked off the track team. He wanders and he flounders until his old high school coach calls him. That's the prophet, you know, like preaching. Okay. And after this serious heart-to-heart, he gets inspired to get back at it. After a few weeks of training, he enters a race, you know, 10,000 meters, and he places seventh out of 24 runners. I mean, he had never finished lower than second in high school. He just wants to give up. I'm washed up. Game over. Coach calls again. Haggai, his, you know, Mr. Haggai calls again. No, you have a future Olympic medal in you. You need a change of heart. You need to persevere in the work necessary to get there. And in the hope of that, now again, that's uncertain. God's plan's going to happen. Okay, it breaks down. I get it. But he gets to work in the ordinary, everyday stuff necessary to make it years later on the Olympic stage. Expectations and reality, hope, and perseverance. So it may be a day of small things, brothers and sisters, and we may simply need to keep our hand to the plow and persevere in the Lord's strength for his glory and be faithful in our generation, continuing to ask and seek and knock for his blessing and for revival and the mighty work of God because, and we can do so because he promised. Like his purpose, his mission is not going to fail. And we have no idea how our little part to play has an impact in that actually, that hope being fulfilled. And we really do have a part. Even if we don't kind of see the dots connected until Jesus comes back and everything we see, you know, fully as we're fully known. We see the tapestry on the top and not just all these like mess of, you know, strings on the bottom that seem you know, just disconnected and just a mess, chaotic mess. But it could also be that we need, that God wants to do first a work in our hearts so that we are vessels fit for his purposes. This was true in Haggai's day. So it may just be we need to continue to stay faithful, trust him. There also could be a dynamic where we've got some stuff we need to get in order, and the Lord wants to deal with that in us. So, point number four holiness, heart work, and the work of our hands, verses 10 and 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. He's going to give like this illustration to make a point. If someone carries holy meat, if a priest carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Does the holiness of the food transfer um, from this holy meat to something else? And the priest answered, faithfully according to the law, no. Then Haggai said, now, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yeah, like what are you getting at here? <laughs> so it does become unclean. This would be kind of like, duh, of course. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands 
and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So look at this. They were offering sacrifices all along. Do you see verse 14? And what they offer there is unclean. But look at verse 17. Yet you did not turn to me. Now remember where they were prior to Haggai preaching. They were indifferent to God's centrality in their lives, but they were still offering sacrifices. They were going through the motions, but without their hearts changed. They hadn't returned to the Lord. They were just going through the religious motions. It's like Jesus in Matthew 15, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So they needed more than simply to get the work done of building the structure of the temple. Even their sacrifices did not make them holy like the meat to these other things. Like pulling levers or getting the formula right. They're seeking first of their own lives and comfort. That was uncleanness and it polluted all of life. For them. So the fact that this temple was just still in ruins in the midst of them, it was like a decaying corpse in their midst as evidence that God had been at the periphery rather than at the center, and it made all of life unclean. It polluted their work and the production of their fields. So they needed to return to God himself. He wanted their hearts, and then their labor and their sacrifices would be acceptable in his sight, and he would bless them. You see? The train of thought. So the blessing, God says in verse 19, will come from me, not because you pulled the right religious levers. The book then ends with this powerful reason for the hope that can enable us to persevere in seeking first the kingdom, no matter the results in our lifetime. So point number five now of shaking and signet rings, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. That's Exodus language, the way God defeated Pharaoh and his army, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See what I mean about minor prophets? Sometimes we're kind of like, huh? Like, so that's the end? What in the world does that mean? Right? You need to do a little work. 
Actually, it's a really powerful conclusion. So the fulfillment of the hopes of the people of God are tied to the fulfillment of the promises God made to David. Huh? Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, is a descendant of David, and he's the governor. He's the ruler, kind of king with a lowercase k. I mean, kind of the ruler of a nothing kingdom at this point. But to be promised that he would be made like a signet ring meant he was going to rule on God's behalf as his anointed ruler. God hadn't forgotten about the promises he made to David. So here's the point. God is once again reiterating his promise to the son of David who would one day rule the nations, overthrowing all the rivals and oppression and the enemies of God and bringing in blessing and peace for the people of God. So here's the bottom line. If you put it all together, the renewal of the temple is coupled with the renewal of the kingship, David's dynasty. It's an alignment of the temple and the throne. And when the temple is rebuilt and purified and the son of David is on the throne, the restoration can't fail. Do you see? It's the hope that's secured based on these two things. There is hope enough to persevere, seeking first the kingdom, no matter how small the results. So, I'll bring it to the communion table as we are going to participate together here in just a couple minutes. We come to the table. What does this table mean? Hopefully you have your little package of wafer and, and juice. It means that the temple... The dwelling place of God with man, with people, with his people. That's Jesus ultimately, right? Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. So that temple, whether it's Solomon's or this one, they're all just foreshadowings. They're just shadows of the true temple. Jesus' body was destroyed and rebuilt in resurrected power. He was also the Lamb of God who is also our high priest he died and rose again to forgive and cleanse us to make us his holy people. So if you're trusting in Jesus, he has forgiven us all our sins. Jesus died on the cross in our place. And he poured out his spirit on us. We are the temple of the living God. His spirit dwells within us, the very presence of God. He's with us, literally, by his spirit dwelling in us, individually and corporately as the church. And in dying for us and rising again, our suffering servant Savior is now exalted, King of kings, Lord of lords. He sovereignly rules. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has given us a mission. And behold, he will be with us to the very end of the age. So, brothers and sisters, in light of the fact that the renewal has begun and it cannot fail, the temple, the kingship, let us seek first the kingdom, giving him first place in our hearts, allowing that priority to shape and govern every aspect of life, our money, our time, our aspirations and ambitions, our energy, everything. And let's get to work. 
Who cares it's a pandemic? Let's get to work. Even in the day of small things. Because no matter what happens this week, let me say that again, no matter what happens this week, no matter who wins the election, King Jesus is on the throne. He will be tomorrow and he will be on Wednesday. And all of what happens this week, guess what? It's small potatoes compared to what he put us on planet Earth to do as his people. So just one like practical application. Alice Ho texted me. Where are you at? Okay. I don't know who you heard it from, something you were listening to. Um, some church was going to do, I think it was McLean Bible Church. They're going to do like a worship night on election night. So instead of sitting in front of your TV, like watching the tallies and, you know, Maybe we should just gather and sing praise to King Jesus. I think that's a great idea. So talk to Alice afterwards, and I think it'll probably be around 7.30, and we can do it. If it's nice, we'll do it outside. If it's not, we'll do it in here. That's a better way to, you know, spend Tuesday night. So sure, do your research, platforms, candidates, cast your vote, and then you know what? Come and praise the true king who was on the throne yesterday. He will be tomorrow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So raise your hand, Alice, so everybody knows who you are. Okay, great. But we're going to go to the table. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Not, I'm not sorry. What am I saying? Um, so do you know that Haggai's name, you know what it means? This is a quick transition to the table. Um, my feast. His name means my feast. Hmm. So the people in Jerusalem, when they sought first their own kingdom and interests, they sowed much but harvested little. They ate, but they never had enough. They drank, but they never had their fill. Haggai called them to return to the Lord and watch him bless them. And the table, we don't have a table right now because of this, but the table is a testimony to the fact that when we, brothers and sisters, come to Jesus, we feed on him, we find strength for the work to seek first the kingdom. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never, ever thirst. So if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and he is your king, then you are welcome to participate in this table. And let's just drink in. Let's just feed on all the grace that is ours in Christ. He is the temple. He is the king. And nothing is going get to get in the way of his kingdom coming. And in that strength and in that hope, we can go out this week and seek first the kingdom and be his hands and feet in this world. If you are not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. If you're watching on a live stream, really glad you tuned in. And we would love to help you know what it means to trust in Jesus and know him for forgiveness of sin and cleansing and just a completely new, renovated life. So you can get in touch with us, info at bbcde.org, and we will happily follow up with you and tell you more about him. So I'm going to pray. The praise team's going to come up and uh, play some instrumentals for a little, a little while for the sake of our reflection and prayer, and then we'll participate in the table together and then close with a song.
God, you are You are our life. You are our joy. You are our hope. You are our everything. And it is all ours because of Jesus. And I pray that we would not nibble at the table of this world trying to fill up our hungry souls with what only Jesus can satisfy. We thank you that he is our temple and he makes us your temple. We thank you that he is our king and we pray that your kingdom would come in us and through us for your great namesake and for the good of our neighbors and the nations. In his name, amen.